Throughout all of Scripture, throughout all of history, we read about people asking the question, why do the wicked prosper? And I think we can relate with that today, can't we? We look around and it seems like the wicked are prospering. We see wicked men who own islands, have private jets, We see stars and celebrities that seem like they have sold their soul to the devil. And we ask, why do they prosper? So when you start to get discouraged, when you look around and it seems like the wicked prosper, what do you do? Do you just throw your hands up and give up? You decide, well, maybe I should join them. If you can't beat them, join them, right? Or do you turn back to the truth of Scripture? I think when we look around and it seems as though the wicked are prospering, what gives us courage, what helps us continue to go forward, is coming back to Scripture and the truth of Scripture. And that's actually what we're going to hit upon today as we look at Psalm 112. So turn with me, if you will, to Psalm 112. The author of Psalm 112 is unknown. The date that it was written is unknown. And what's also interesting is we don't actually know how this was used. So Psalm 112 is considered a proverb psalm, which means like it could actually fit in Proverbs. They could have taken this psalm and put it, attached it to the Proverbs, uh, and yet it ended up in the Psalms. Now, the Psalms are a book of hymns, right? So when we think of hymnals, what do we use the hymnal for? To lead us in worship, to lead us in praise of God. And that's kind of what the the Psalms were. The Psalms were used by Israel to engage in corporate worship. Now, that's interesting because there's, uh, you know, the imprecatory Psalms, which are like Psalms where they're asking asking God to curse people. And you're like, how on earth is that used for praise and worship? Well, it was a way that Israel could process through some emotions, right? So I kind of break it down like this. The Proverbs were used for skillful living. Proverbs gave wisdom. Wisdom is how do you live your life with skill? That's what the Proverbs were all about. But the Psalms were used to, to process through emotions in a godly way. So that doesn't mean that the Proverbs lacked emotion. The Proverbs talk a lot about emotions. And that doesn't mean that the psalms lack wisdom. And here we have a psalm that engages in wisdom, but also in an emotionally encouraging way. And so, with that in mind, we turn to Psalm 112, and it begins with, Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. His gracious, merciful, and righteous. He is gracious, gracious, merciful, and righteous. It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm. Trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid. 
until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. The wicked man sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desire of the wicked will perish. So this psalm begins with praise the Lord. It's, uh, so this psalm is actually an acrostic. And so an acrostic takes, uh, begins each line with a letter, with the letter, the next letter in the Hebrew alphabet. So if you knew the Hebrew alphabet, you could walk through the Hebrew alphabet with the beginning of each letter in this psalm. But this actually, this first line, praise the Lord, is the only line that is not a part of the acrostic. So it, it, it engages us with this idea to praise God. The beginning of this, uh, of this psalm that could fit in the Proverbs, that they actually broke the rule of the acrostic for, is praise God. It kind of shows us, it reveals to us how important praising God is. Praising God can actually change our hearts. I want to say that again, because it's so important for us to realize. Praising God can actually change our hearts. The rest of the psalm will list the benefits of living a life of wisdom. But it begins with this idea of praising God. The term praise here is hallelujah. Hallelujah is a compound word in the Hebrew. Yah is an abbreviation or shorthand for Yahweh. And hallelujah means to boast in. So we get this idea of hallelujah means boasting in God. To boast about God. Now in order to boast in something, we first need to understand what that means person has done, right? I like to think of it like this. As a parent, we like to boast in our kids. I've met very few parents that don't like to boast in their kids. I remember boasting in my kid, uh, kids when they were younger and like uh, thinking that they were absolutely geniuses and then discovering that they just did everything that every other baby has ever done. Uh, I, I think you've met that parent probably at some point in your life, right? Maybe you have been that parent where you're like, Wow, my kid just stood. My kids actually walked at 18 months, which is, you know, quite a few months later than most kids do. But man, I was boastful about that. But I, I was interested in my kids, and I knew what my kids were doing. You can't boast in a kid that you do not know. Harper's biological, we still have contact with Harper's biological dad. There are a lot of things he cannot boast in her about. He's in prison. We, con- we talk with him frequently. Uh, what's really cool is everything that we tell him about her, he tells us that he tells all of his cellies about. He's boasting about Harper to his cellies. But in order to do that, he needs to know what she's doing, right? In order to boast in God, in order to praise him, to boast in him, 
we need to study what he has done. That means we need to be in the Word. We need to be in the Bible, which gives us the descriptions of what God has done. You cannot boast in God if you're not looking out for the greatness of God. And so the first step in boasting in God is to study His Word. He continues on then. Blessed is the man who fears God. Or blessed is the man who fears the Lord. Uh, I, I always like to point this out when we're in the Old Testament. Anytime that you're reading in the English translation, uh, uh, the Lord in the Old Testament, and Lord is in all caps, that's actually the Hebrew word for Yahweh. Now, uh, it's not translated as Yahweh for several different reasons, but one of those is the, the Israelites did not like to, or they thought it was blasphemous, to actually use the name of God. So oftentimes they would uh, short, use shorthand for Yahweh, and they wouldn't actually say the name Yahweh. In fact, we actually don't quite know what the literal name or word was, because they never actually wrote it all the way out. That's how seriously they took it. And so that's kind of this, this uh, capitalized Lord is kind of left over from that idea. So, blessed is the man who fears Yahweh is, is a more literal translation of that. Blessed is someone who enjoys favorable circumstance, right? So if you are blessed, you are enjoying favorable circumstances. The person who fears the Lord will experience blessings. The fear of the Lord is one of the themes of Proverbs. And it is the beginning of wisdom. You'll read that over and over again in the Proverbs, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now you can see how this is a psalm that actually fits in with the Proverbs, don't you? If, if the theme of Proverbs is the fear of the Lord, that you'll receive wisdom from the fear of the Lord, and this one actually starts out with, after praising the Lord, then the fear of the Lord is what gives you blessings. But it might behoove us if, if the great theme of Proverbs is the fear of the Lord, and here we see that the, fear of the, that the fear of the Lord will bring us blessings, it might behoove us to dig a little bit deeper into this idea of the fear of Yahweh. This fear isn't necessitate uh, trembling. It's not like when you're alone at home and you hear a noise outside. That's not necessarily what this fear is, but it is more like a deep respect, profound respect and understanding of something that is powerful. When I think of this, I always think about my cousin, who is a surfer, and I went out to get surf lessons from him once, and the very first thing he taught me about surfing is, you never turn your back on the ocean. My cousin, who grew up around the ocean, who lives in Kauai now and is going to the ocean all the time, had a deep and profound respect for the ocean because he knew the power of the ocean. And he told me, when you turn your back on the ocean, that's when you get injured by the ocean, or worse. But what's amazing about that is it wasn't that he was so afraid that he wouldn't go surfing. He still goes surfing all the time, every day. He's out there playing in the ocean. But it was that profound respect for the ocean that actually enabled him to enjoy the ocean. How many tourists have gone out to the ocean, saw its beauty, 
saw the waves that looked like fun to play in, and without respect for the ocean, got in it and were killed by it. I took an oceanography class when I was in college in landlocked Denver. Yeah, that was a blow-off class, I'll just admit it. Uh, But what was interesting is we learned about this uh, football player who did not have the proper respect for the ocean. And he went down and he climbed on these rocks because he wanted to get a better view of this place where the ocean's waves were crashing up against those rocks. But he didn't know about tides. He climbed down there during low tide. And when high tide came, the ocean smashed him against the rocks, killing him. He did not have a profound respect for the ocean. A year later, his family wanted to scatter his ashes at the exact same time in the exact same place where he died. They, too, didn't realize the power of the ocean. And they, too, were killed by the ocean in the exact same way. There is a profound respect that we need to have for the ocean. And what's amazing is when we have that respect, we actually can enjoy the ocean more. If God is the creator of the ocean, how much more so should our profound respect for God be? He is a great, mighty, holy, infinite God, one that our minds cannot actually wrap totally around. And he could, at any moment, call you to account for all of your rebellion, for all of your sin, every little bit of your life where you have messed up that one thing that keeps nagging at you, that you feel that constant shame about, God could call you to account for that, and you would be standing in front of a holy God. So we should have a great amount of respect for God. But I have a hard time talking about the fear of the Lord without also bringing in 1 John 4.18. 1 John 4.18 says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. So the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God. As we realize who God is and who we are, knowing that he is a just, holy God, there should be some sort of trembling, right? But that's just the beginning. It doesn't stop there. We also realize what he has done for us, that he has paid the price for our sin, that although we all have been in rebellion against God, although we all have shaken our fist at God and therefore deserve eternal separation from God, he has loved us with such a great love that he came and he paid the price for you and I in order to reconcile us back to him. And when you put your faith and trust on his work on the cross, he no longer holds that sin against you, but calls you righteous and calls you holy, pure, sanctified, washed. You are completely forgiven and completely full because of what He has done. 
So there is a tremendous amount of respect that we need to have for God, but also as a loving father cares for his children, so too God cares for us. And the more we study about him, it's kind of this crazy thing where the more we study about him and the more we study his works, the more in awe we can be of him, but also the more we draw closer to him because of the great love that he has for us. Now, I don't think I'm a muscle man by any means. Uh, I have a brother that's he's really into bodybuilding and lifting weights and being really giant. Uh, I'm not by that by any means. But my kids sure think I am. I don't know why they think that, but man, they love my muscles. Uh, <laughs> What's amazing is they're not afraid to come and cuddle me. I kind of picture that as our relationship with God, too. They're in awe of my muscles, and yet they want to be held by my muscles. We can be in awe of God, and it is that very same awe that can make us feel safe and secure because of who he is. So the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And to have that fear, to have that great awe, actually can give us more security and safety. To put it one more way, I know I'm kind of beating this in, but I think it's so important to understand. To put it another way, uh, children who don't have an authority figure in their life, or like if, if, ch- if children have adults in their life, parents in their life, who aren't authority figures... Growing up, I knew a lot of children like this who, who their parents were there, but they actually, the kids knew that they called the shots. What, what researchers have found is that those children actually have more fear in their life than children who have solid authority figures. Because the kid realizes that, that they're the authority in their house, and yet this world is a great big world. And there's a lot of scary things going on in this world, right? And if they're the only authority they know, that's a scary place to be. But a child in a house where there is authority, where there is a parent that they know will take care of them, they begin to feel more safe and more secure. I kind of also compare that with God. The more we study about him and are in awe of who he is, the more safe and secure we can feel in this life. Because we know that it's not up to me to right all the wrongs and all the injustices of this world. It's not up to me. But there is a God who is far larger than I can even comprehend, who cares more about justice, who cares more about righteousness than I could ever care. And He cares for me. So even in the midst of injustice happening to me, I can still feel safe and secure knowing that God loves me and that in the end, in the end, maybe not in my lifetime, but in the end, when all is said and done with humanity, God will make things 
So praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commands. So this is the description of someone who, would, who, who is going to be blessed, who fears the Lord. If you are in awe and respect of God, then you will delight in his commands. If you are not in awe of God, and you do not have a high regard for God, you will not delight in his commands. I go back to the idea of the ocean, right? That football player that got killed on, the, on those rocks, he did not have a fear of the ocean. He did not hold the ocean in high regard. And therefore, he did not study the ocean. And therefore, the ocean killed him. But if we have a high regard for God, if we are in awe of God, then we will delight in His commands. We will study His Word, we will search for His commands, and we will delight in His commands. Now, if you delight in His commands, then it, then it automatically uh, reveals that you will also live out His commands. So delighting in His commands means that you will pursue His commands, that means that you will live out His commands. You cannot delight in His commands and live in rebellion against his commands. There are some people that think that you can delight, that they are delighting in God's commands while still living in rebellion to God. And I think those people don't actually have a high regard for God. They see God as like a magic genie, or maybe a jukebox. I think they have what I call, let's make a deal theology. You know, God, you're great and all, And I'm going to do some stuff so that you owe me. Or maybe it's, and I've heard several people talk about like how much someone loves God because they pray all the time. And that's like, don't get me wrong, I love prayer. I think we should be in prayer. Uh, Paul says to pray without ceasing. But sometimes it's a question of what do you mean prayer all the time? Because I hear a lot of people that just pray like a jukebox prayer. You know, let me put in my 50 cents and then, God, you owe me. Let me put in my 50 cents and then, God, you better play the music I want. And really, what are they using prayer for? They're using prayer as a way of manipulating instead of using prayer as a way to be in submission to God. But if you delight in God, then you will live out His commands. You will pursue His commands and you will be submissive to God. So how do we do that? How do we go from seeing or viewing God as like this magic genie in the sky that should be dancing to our tune? And I think it goes back to recognizing who he is and who we are. When I think I know better than God, I don't live out his commands. Now there are some times when I don't quite understand God's command. Like, I don't understand why he, he commanded us to do that. But even when I lack understanding, I can still delight because I trust that God is good. And I can still live out his commands because I can trust that God is good. An example I like to use for this is a friend of mine who, when he was in college, he... Uh, he started exploring a homosexual lifestyle. And not only just exploring it, but he embraced it fully. 
Now, he will tell you right off the bat that he never chose to be gay. And, and anytime somebody says, well, you're just choosing to be gay, he's like, no, I wanted to be straight. You don't understand how much, and he, he had this, what he called, pray away the gay theology. He was like, if I just prayed enough to God, he would take this desire from me. But that never happened. God never took that desire from him, and he got so frustrated, he was like, fine, God, you must have just made me this way, so I'm going to fully embrace it. I'm going to jump into it head full. And he lived that way for a long time. And there's a whole testimony, a really cool testimony. I'd love to actually have him out sometime to, to talk. But, uh, but he came to know Christ, and he realized something. And he didn't quite understand it. And he, doesn't, he didn't understand why he struggled with homosexuality and same-sex attraction. But what he decided, even though he didn't understand God's commands, he knew that God commanded him not to live a homosexual lifestyle. He knew that God had commanded that he shouldn't sleep with other men. And so, instead of praying away the gay, instead of uh, being in rebellion against God, he decided, even though he didn't understand, he was just going to submit it to God. He was going to submit his sexuality to God, and he was going to live the way God had commanded. I think there's a lot of straight people, actually, that could use that same advice. Because there's a lot of straight people that are like, you know, I'm straight, so I'm not living in sin, although I can lust all I want. Lust is still a sin. And you need to submit that to God. Anyways, what's amazing about his story is as he submitted it to Christ, that's when the healing actually began. And what's really amazing about his story now is he is happily married with two children. And it all comes back to this idea of delighting in the Lord's commands and submitting your life to them. So then he goes on, and, and the rest of the psalm kind of describes the wisdom of all this and how this actually plays out. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. So not only will this person who fears the Lord and delights in his commands be blessed, but his, the next generation will. And I think this comes from when we follow God's moral principles. So we have first have to recognize that God created this world with moral principles, right? So uh, when we follow those moral principles, then the very building blocks where a healthy and flourishing society exists. The very building blocks for a healthy community exists. When we do not fear God, when we don't delight in his commands, and we don't uh, submit to his moral principles, then the building blocks for society to flourish actually collapses. And thus the community does not flourish. I would argue that today in America we are still benefiting from the influence of Christianity, from the Christian culture. Even though we are now in a post-Christian world, but to value life, to value love, to value honesty, to value integrity, these are Christian values. These are part of the building blocks of a, of a, of a society. 
as our culture becomes more and more secular, I think our culture will see less and less value. So however, this psalm still gives us hope. As we hold to God's commandments, God will make a difference and influence the culture through us. The early Christians didn't give up because Rome was pagan. They knew their assignment, they lived out their assignment, and God used the early church to transform Western civilization. God can use us today, again. The psalmist continues to describe the person who delights in God's command. Verse 3, wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. So before we begin to turn this into a prosperity gospel, the idea that if you follow God's commands, you will be rich, that's the prosperity gospel, right? Like, that's the jukebox God. God, I give you something you owe me now. Before we begin to turn that into this, I don't think the text is saying that you will become rich because you delight in God's commands, as if God owed it to you, that, you know, you just pay God out and he'll pay you back. I think as we examine the principles found in Proverbs, in particular, principles concerning finances, we see that wisdom helps you to be financially responsible and thus providing wealth in your house. I think that's actually the key to this. It's not that God's just going to all of a sudden make you wealthy. It's that as you follow those principles about finances, that is what makes you wealthy. Conversely, let's say you really delight in God's commands in every area of your life except for finances, you're still going to end up being poor because you're not following the principles that God has laid out for finances. So God has laid out principles, moral principles for finances, and when we follow those, we can build wealth. I think the difference is important for us to grasp because according to some, when we delight in God's law, then he will make us rich. The problem is, when we don't become rich, we begin to question if God even exists. We go back to that genie God and we say, God, you promised. But when we delight in God's promise, when we live out his principles, including principles concerning finances, that can create wealth for our house. Verse 4. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. So here we find that by delighting in God's commands, we are light in a dark world. It is important to note that it's not saying that we will not have dark times. We will experience dark times. We will go through difficult times. We will watch loved ones die. We will face financial hardships. We will face persecution. We will face dark times. But in the midst of those difficult times, we can still have hope. We can see the gospel working in the lives around us. We can see the gospel working in our own hearts. And that reminds us of God's power. That God changes lives. That the gospel changes lives. There's a, in my family, there is a group of 
non-believers, and a group of believers. Growing up, actually, uh, on my dad's side, his parents were non-believers. On my mom's side, parents, my grandparents were believers. I got to see firsthand the stark contrast between the two. My grandma had been married seven times. My grandpa, I don't even know how many times he was married. I had several different ladies in my life that I called grandma, not actually knowing what their relationship was. I remember at one point in, uh, in college, my uncle Tom, who was actually stealing from my dad, got caught stealing, and my dad was like, you know, he's not your biological uncle. You don't have to call him Uncle Tom if you don't want to. That was the kind of life that we saw. On my mom's side, my grandparents were married for 75 years. They loved each other until the day that they died. They served in church. They actually served in Awana listening to verses into their 90s. They lived a life that I want to live. I got to see the clear difference of the gospel. And I think that's what this verse is describing here. That when you are living this gospel-centered life, then you get to be that light in the darkness. And the ways that we get to be that light is through gracious, mercy, and righteousness. So, grace is unmerited favor. Undeserved favor. When we offer grace to people, we are offering favor that is undeserved. I think it's human nature to give favor or to delight in people or to pursue people that we think deserve it. Don't we? I mean, we pursue, as humans, we pursue the most beautiful, the wealthy, those who have charisma, Maybe those who think like us so that they can reinforce our beliefs. We pursue those that make us feel good about ourselves. And we tend to ignore or avoid those we dislike. The outcast, the smelly, the annoying. Those who just don't quite fit in. And one way we can be a light to this world is by delighting in and showing favor to those who are not valued by the rest of the world. So grace is one of the ways that God shines his light through us. The other one is through mercy. Mercy is withholding punishment. In a world full of punitive punishment, desiring to see others get what they deserve, And I think we see this all the time, right? Even in politics. Look at our politics today. You see punitive punishment all the time. We see people rooting for the failure of a president because he's not part of the political party that you're a part of. And sometimes we root for this failure even if that failure ends up hurting us because they don't have a letter next to their name. But when we show mercy, 
we stop holding every little thing against others. We begin to wish for the good of others, even seeming enemies. And when we do that, we let God's light shine in dark places. And the third one is righteousness. The idea here is, even in darkness, when you can get away with being unrighteous. Righteousness is moral standards. So the the Hebrew word for righteous is tzaddik, and it means to, to live by a moral standard. And in a world that is dark, where there is unrighteousness abounding, you can get away with being unrighteous as well. You can cheat that person. You can cut those corners. But when you live according to God's moral standard, while everyone else is trying to succeed no matter what, the righteous person stands out. And the righteous person shines a light in the dark world. The psalmist continues in verse 5, It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. So we begin to turn this... uh, Sorry. uh, So the... This idea here is that uh, you would lend out money, that you would use the wealth that you have built, that you've followed God's uh, principles for finances, you've built some wealth, and then you would use that wealth to help the, the community flourish. Today, when we think of lending, we usually think of high interest rates, we think of passive income. Essentially, we loan out money to make money, right? But in ancient Israel, it was actually forbidden to charge an interest rate to other Israelites. So loaning out money wasn't a way to make more money. It was a way to use your surplus wealth for the benefit of others. And so it was a way to improve the community, to help the community flourish, even at your own risk. So the righteous would loan money, whereas the unrighteous would see the risk and hold on to their money disadvantaging the community because they didn't want to take the risk. The second part of this is who conducts his affairs with justice. The word justice in Hebrew is mishpat. It means to give someone their due without concern for social standing. That's an important idea because a lot of people want to give people based on their social standing, right? We see, once again, we see this all the time. Certain people who make more money, who have higher social rank, don't get charged with the crimes that maybe they should be getting charged with. But justice, true justice, that has no concern for your social standing, for your social rank. So many commentators take this verse and have discussed how the second line pertains to doing an honest work. If there is uh, giving people their due, then this really relates to doing quality work. The temptation in a dark world is to do just enough to make yourself some money. But someone who is shining a light, someone who delights in God's command, always does a high-quality job with their work. They always work as if they're working for God, not for some boss that they hate. Verse 6, 
For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. Another way to put this verse is, the reason why the righteous will be remembered forever is because he will never be moved. And the idea is that the righteous person will pursue God's commands and see those commands as a moral authority. Thus, that person will be remembered. It's contrasted with a moral authority that's always moving, or a morality that's always moving. If you do not have an objective moral authority over you, then you become your own moral authority, and then that morality will constantly be moving. It will always be adjusting. It will always be changing. And it will always be a morality that feels good at that moment. But we all know that what feels good today may feel horrible tomorrow. So today's morality can easily change on a whim tomorrow. So the righteous will be remembered because they stood their ground on God's holy standard. Even when it was unpopular, even when it seemed like it might be foolish, God's standard outlasts wishy-washy morality. Subjective wishy-washy morality eats at the very building blocks of society. And after all is said and done, people will look back and consider those who stood on God's morality the ones who were right. Verse 7, he is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. So this person who is righteousness, who delights in the law of God, is also not afraid of bad news. The reason is because he trusts in God. It's important to note that he doesn't believe, it's not that he doesn't believe the bad news, right? We might write that off as like, oh, he's just foolish. He doesn't really believe that there's bad news. That would be delusional. This person is in touch with reality. He's not delusional. But when the bad news comes, he's not afraid because he knows that God can take something bad and turn it into something good. So we don't need to fear bad news, but instead trust God even in the midst of bad news. Verse 8. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. So this paints a picture of a warrior who's going out to war. He sees the enemy. And most of us would feel scared. I remember when I was in high school playing football. During warm-ups, I'd try to be as intimidating as possible. I don't think I was that intimidating. And I remember seeing some of the huge players on other teams And I remember feeling afraid. Like, man, that guy is going to run me over. I can't imagine how much more you would feel that in war. So we have this picture of a warrior seeing his enemies, yet he is not moved, he is not afraid, because he trusts in God. Because he knows who God is, and he knows who he is, and he knows who they are. And because of his deep and profound respect for God, he is not afraid. Verse 9, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever, his horn is exalted in honor. So throughout the Proverbs, the righteous are seen as people that are willing to help the community even at their own cost. In this psalm, we see that same theme here. 
Here we see the righteous, the one who delights in God, commandments being generous. He gives freely. He knows that what he has isn't actually his, but belongs to God. And he has been called to be a good steward with what God has given him. What does that look like for you? What do you have? How has God called you to steward what he has given you? This idea of his horn uh, being exalted, a horn was a metaphor for power. Uh, When uh, you'd look at an animal with a big horn, you'd think of that uh, animal as being powerful. Think of an elk. When you see a huge elk with a huge rack, you think, what? Wow, that's one amazing elk. So the idea of having a horn that is honored gives the idea that this person will influence. Because this person is living out the commandments of God, this person will have influence. Now we look around and it seems that the Christians are losing influence, that our culture is turning more and more from God and thus from what Christians have to say. And that could be true. And I think it might be true on a grand scale. But what about on a relational scale? When you live out this psalm, when you follow God's commands, you become more influential in the lives around you. And God uses that to transform lives. The psalmist next contrasts the righteous with the wicked. The wicked man sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desire of the wicked will perish. So the wicked see the influence of the righteous. They see the good work the righteous are doing. And the wicked gets angry. The wicked do not like righteousness. They are in rebellion against God. So they hate anything that represents God. The end result of their rebellion, though, is that they will perish. I like the picture that it paints, that they'll, they'll melt away. And you think about an ice cube that is put on a sidewalk on a hot summer day in Phoenix. And at first, that ice cube is hard as a rock, right? But it doesn't take long in Phoenix in July for that ice cube to melt and to evaporate. And that's the picture that he has painted here of the wicked who are in rebellion against God. Because the wicked are against God and they are against His laws, they will fail. It's easy to look around, to see that we are in a post-Christian culture, to see what seems like successful people who are wicked. And it's easy to begin to get discouraged. But I believe this psalm gives us hope. We can trust that in the end, when all is said and done, God will have the victory and the wicked will melt. Dear Lord, we thank You so much for Your Word. We thank you, first of all, that we can boast in you, that you have proclaimed all the great acts that you have done, that we can boast in you. And we pray 
that you would give us this hope. That we know that in the end, you win. In the end, you are victorious. And we pray that you would help us to live Psalm 112 out. That we would be people that model our lives after Psalm 112. That we would live secure in the wisdom principles you have given because we know who you are. And we know that in the end, you are always victorious. In your name we pray. Amen.